Hey there, welcome to Night School. Happy winter solstice. I like to get a solstice episode in when I can. I always like to take advantage of a good solstice. Although, you know, like anything else, it's not a day that I really ritualize. I'm just aware of it. I might light a candle later. Between us, I might light a candle later. No, it is one of those days, though, where I feel like you're just immersed in it. And besides, real pagans celebrate the solstice every day. Every day is a little incremental solstice. Every night's a school night. Every every day is a solstice. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it, it, I always think about, especially winter solstice. I don't think about the other solstices too much. Is there one other solstice or are there four? I always forget if there is a solstice for each season or if it's just winter and spring or summer. I don't even know. I've lost track of what the solstices even mean and how many there even are. Lost track of everything. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel I'm glad it's winter. I'm glad there's sort of a ceremonial cutoff right now because I think I actually need one. You know, I don't like to get all Psych 101. I know I say that a lot. I, I talk, I'm very self-conscious of when I'm getting a little sel- uh, a little Psych 101 about things. But I, I'm definitely starting to notice where the last year has taken its toll in certain ways. Obviously, I had a personal tragedy a year ago. But I'm also noticing where isolation, the circumstances of the world, it's crept in. You know, it's crept in in ways, and I'm starting to realize that, and I've been very aware of my criticisms and my, I don't know, what I'll say, this is what I'll say about isolation. When you see isolated people under under normal circumstances, you know, the old man who lives by himself, the old curmudgeon, that archetype, the old isolated curmudgeon, you know, when you see that, though, that sort of person is often bitter. Or you think about my my favorite example in the world, the bad wizard Ted Kaczynski. You know, I did that episode where I was asking, could someone in Ted Kaczynski's position have become a good wizard? And my answer is yes, because we have good wizards. <laughs> we we have good wizards. You know, there are people who can isolate, but I think they have to be spiritually inclined. I think they have to be they have to have a system for keeping themselves in check or just be that special because in isolation it's so easy to analyze and overanalyze every interaction you have and every person you know and i feel like i've been doing that lately i mean i did an episode recently about don't you just hate it when somebody sends you a video and you don't like it which just is embarrassing to me, even though I stand by that, even though I, I still stand by what I said. I'm just like, what? Why am I saying that? And I, I do feel that I've been needlessly critical. Lately. And, uh, you know, part of that's just me being me. I mean, I analyze things. I analyze people. I I think about things maybe a little longer than I should. And when you do that, you can easily start to turn that analysis into criticism. And so I don't want to be in a position where I'm like, can you believe that your friends do this thing that is totally normal? 
And can I, can you believe, and then the next, then you take a step out, out from there and you're like, can you believe that I react this way to this thing? And it, it, I just don't like to go there. And I, I'm glad there's a cutoff. I'm glad that the season is over because late fall is sort of miserable in a way. I love fall. We all love early fall, especially if you get clear weather. Like if you get a clear October, you know, I live in Washington, so, you know, there's a a high chance that we'll have never-ending rainstorms in the fall and winter, but we will sometimes get a perfectly clear October and that is just, it's just such a wonderful sight because you forget that we do have, you know, it might not be a New England fall, which I've never experienced. You hear about New England. You ever spent a fall in New England? You know, you hear people say that. But if we have clear weather, we get something like that. You know, we don't have, you know, not all of our trees change. You know, Washington has, uh, is it deciduous? What, what's the word for it? It's, uh, we have trees that change and we have trees that don't change. But we do get this very colorful fall if it's clear. So we have that. But by the time, you know, late November hits, there's a lot of leaves on the ground and they're just in this, they're just soaking wet. And they turn this kind of brown, maroon. And it's cool in a way. I mean, there's something cool about it. I do appreciate it. But it it gets kind of, you just kind of feel like everything's mucky and gross. But then when winter fully sets in, there's this purity the air feels a little clearer. You know, some of those piles of leaves start to give way. And, you know, I, and I appreciate the barrenness of winter. I do enjoy walking in the woods when it's totally lush. As long as my allergies aren't kicking in in the spring, you know, I enjoy the lushness of the woods in spring. But I also enjoy just the starkness, the austerity of being in the forest in winter and being able to see through and and you see things you would never imagine, you know, oh, I didn't know a house was that close, but you also find, you know, all sorts of natural things. You're like, oh, I didn't know there was a clearing in there. You know, you'll just notice little details that uh, become revealed when everything is bare. But no, I'm glad it's winter. I feel like I'm going to take a, a slightly different mindset into this season than I had in the fall. I don't know what that is. I mean, that's just, just saying that out loud right now sounds like a bunch of nonsense. And I think it is, <laughs> but no, having a cutoff, it's like I talk about with graduations and all of that, where, you know, you don't need to wear the cap and gown. You don't need to have a, a celebratory cake to graduate. The act of graduating from school doesn't require any ceremony at all. But we like that ceremony. We like having that cutoff. We like having that ritual. And that helps make it real. And I would say the same is true for seasons as well, where, you know, can you really say that today is winter and yesterday wasn't? You know, when you put these days back to back, can you really say, I mean, every once in a while you will get a moment. I mean, today, for example, it's, it's just been pouring rain. There's been wind storms. It feels like nature knows today is the solstice and it is acting accordingly. But for the most part, I mean, are you going to say that yesterday was truly different from today? All these things are gradual. The apocalypse is gradual. The season changing is gradual. You know, it's the same thing for your birthday. 
It's like you spend all year getting slightly older every second of every day. And then you have this one day where you suddenly start calling yourself a different number. I'm 35. You know, you start saying that when really it's been this gradual process all along. But your birthday is the ceremonial day. Because it's not like you came into existence on the day you were born. You entered reality, maybe. I don't know. Who am I to say that the womb isn't reality, huh? There's a lot of people. I mean, isn't that the core of the abortion debate? (laughs) Is the womb reality? I'm going to start bringing that up. You guys are going about it all wrong. You guys are going about it all wrong. The question isn't, does life begin at conception? The question is, is the womb even reality? Is the womb even reality? I think so. I think it's a different form of reality, but it's a reality. So listen up, girls. Listen up, ladies. Your womb is its own reality, but it's still a part of the larger reality. It's a subcategory. Your womb is a subcategory of reality. I bet your mama didn't talk to you about that one. I bet your mom didn't sit you down when she told you about the birds and the bees, and I doubt she told you about the alternate reality that is your womb. And that's what men are seeking, girls. You know, it's it's not that men are seeking pleasure. Men aren't seeking, oh, sexual pleasure? No, it's men are seeking the alternate alternate reality of your womb. That's the big secret. Girls spend all this time. I mean, if you've ever been out with girls on a uh, a girls' night out, which I've actually been to, it w- I wasn't planned, but I was at a bar, and a group of women I know, they were friends of mine, they were out having a girls' night out, and we were all friends, so they were like, hey, come sit with us, so we're having a girls' night out, but you're you're welcome to join. It felt good. It felt like an honor. I didn't feel like a girl either. I somehow got to participate in this girls' night out without feeling like I had to act like a girl. Like they didn't put makeup on me. I didn't have to talk about girl things. I just got to kind of witness it. It was uh, kind of like the alternate reality of the womb. (laughs) Enough about that. Enough. Uh, But no, with graduation and stuff, you know, it's this ceremonial moment. But meanwhile, you've been actually graduating the entire time you were in school. Every time you turned in a homework assignment, every time you tried to pass a test, every time you studied for a test, you were actually in the process of graduating. In the same way that every day throughout a year, you are in the process of getting older, and your birthday is actually just the ceremony. Same thing for the solstice people. Uh, The whole season is, you know, they, they blend into each other, but, um, you know, I am going to treat this like a, a nice change. Because uh, as I said, you know, I, I haven't been entirely happy with how, I don't know, I, I, like, I, like I was saying, you know, a minute ago, just I'm definitely noticing little things here and there. Nothing too bad. Nothing, nothing that I'm mortified about. But I'm just seeing where being isolated which is something that I can handle naturally. You know, I spend a lot of time alone naturally, regardless of coronavi. 
you know, I'm already somebody who likes to spend time alone. I genuinely enjoy my own company, and obviously I enjoy hearing myself talk, as evidenced by this show. Uh, but, you know, so I'm used to a certain degree of isolation by choice. But I'm recognizing how all of those little interactions that I have, that once or twice a month that I meet up with a friend, I'm recognizing the value of that. And, and even if it's small talk, you know, even if it's just catching up, even if it's just seeing somebody you know out and about and catching up for a second with some small talk, that reinforces you in certain ways. And, you know, it just, it, it, it's good to keep that muscle in use. Just the banal social interaction muscle. And I do, you know, I talk to people, there's a couple people I see here and there. It's not like I've been 100% isolated from all people, but, you know, you just, you do start to notice that you haven't been using that muscle regularly, and it's not like I'm, you know, crouched down in a corner of a cave, you know, eating raw meat straight from the bone. You know, it's not like I've lost all my social graces. And I find that my interactions with strangers, like at the store and everything, go very smoothly. But I've just, I've noticed lately that I feel like I've been overthinking my interactions with people. And also, I've been overly critical of people. And you can really become Livia Soprano, is what it is, where it's like, can you believe, can you believe that she sent me a video that she thought I'd like? You know, you can easily become that kind of person. And there's a reason why the archetype of the curmudgeon is almost always a loner. They're almost always somebody who has very few interactions, and they spend a lot of their time thinking about the few people they know. They spend a lot of time thinking about people from the past. Uh, So it's just kind of an interesting thing to witness. But you can turn that into being a good wizard. You know, you don't have to become Ted Kaczynski. You don't have to become Livia Soprano. You know, you can uh, apply this in a good way. You know, because the nice thing about isolation is that your internal processes do get to work. And it's good that your internal processes have to deal with external processes. It's good that they have to come out of you and interact with other people's internal processes, which are coming out of them, and that you're... Yeah, I don't even know. I was going to say your both of your external processes then interact. You know, all of that's good, but it, no, it can be good. I think it's good to have a degree of isolation. And I think if you're somebody who's not comfortable at all being isolated, even for short short amounts of time, and I know everybody's wired differently in that regard, but if if there's one little personal goal in your life, it should be to enjoy your time alone. And not seek it at the expense of everything else. Not not allowing your time alone to be at the expense of your other relationships. But, you know, I think you should grow comfortable with that. And, and being alone and sober, too, is an important part of that. And, uh, you know, I've been smoking a little weed again lately. Which, uh, you know, I'm almost I'm hesitant to mention it. Because, you know, I've never stopped smoking weed entirely. I've gone a year 
I've gone, you know, certain amounts of time. Because when I talk about not drinking, which has now been over three years, I'll sometimes refer to that as sobriety. Because to me, me being who I am, the way I'm wired, you know, sobriety for me is just not drinking. And as a normal part of my life since stopping drinking, I don't really, I don't have a vice at any given time. When I first quit drinking, I was still smoking weed for a few months. I think it was about two months after I quit drinking, I I was still smoking weed, and that was a great help. It was nice to have something. And a lot of people wouldn't recommend that. A lot of people, you know, obviously weed is a substance. It's not that I'm saying weed isn't, you know, when you're stoned, you're not sober. You ever heard of that one? When you're stoned, you're not sober. It's true, though. You know, I don't consider marijuana to be entirely benign. But it's a much different substance, and it's uh, just something I, I'll go through a little phase here or there. The nice thing is, is that it's legal, so I can get it at any time. Because I used to be completely dependent on marijuana. You know, when I was a, in my late teens, up through my mid-20s, I couldn't, I could function without it, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. Like when I was in college, if my dealer left town for the, you know, winter break or spring break, and I didn't load up or I ran out without being able to get it, or if I lost a dealer, you know, if your dealer stops answering their phone or if they stop selling weed, you know, and you don't have a, a backup, that was so dreadful because I would have dreams about obtaining weed and I would wake up and have no weed. I would ask random people. I remember being in the woods and seeing some like young sort of people and asking them, hey, do you know where I could get some weed? You know, the idea of asking a total stranger that is so foreign to me. Uh, <laughs> but yet I did it because I was just so preoccupied. Like if I didn't have weed, I was trying to get weed. And looking back at even just the friends I made in college. And I don't, I really, I don't have any friends that I went to college with. And the main reason for that is because the entire relationship was just based on weed, basically. Like, I made friends with people in college over weed. And uh, it's not not to say that I didn't make friends outside of school during that time that are still my friends today. Uh, You know, some of my best friends, actually, are people I met while I was in college, but I didn't meet them at the college. But when I think about, you know, a lot of people I know, they made lifelong friends in college that they went to school with. And I didn't do that because the main reason I interacted with my classmates was just trying to get weed. So it's just kind of funny. But the nice thing about it being legal is you can get it wherever you want uh, or whenever, wherever you want. You know, it's really no big deal. Although it's funny, I still have a little bit of that same anxiety getting it as I would when I would go to the dealer's house or that kind of thing. But no, it's good to have every once in a while because it doesn't lead me down a slippery slope. The only problem I have with weed, and I feel comfortable criticizing weed since it's been legalized, because when something is banned, I'm not comfortable criticizing it because I don't want anything I say to contribute to what I see as an unfair prohibition. So if if I had lived during the 1920s when alcohol was prohibited, I would have been reluctant to say anything critical of alcohol because I don't think that it should be banned. Even being somebody who had a bad drinking problem and quit, I still don't think that alcohol should be banned now. Uh, but when it's 
legal, I feel comfortable saying things about it. Like, I'm comfortable talking about why alcohol was bad for me and why it's bad for other people because it is legal. And me talking about it critically doesn't contribute to a prohibition. Uh, so it's very much the same thing for weed. You know, while even, in, even when I was completely dependent on weed, my late teens, early 20s, I was very aware of the downsides of it. And I'm not one of these people who will, ever, who will ever tell you, oh, weed? You mean the wonder drug? You mean the perfect little wonder drug? You know, I'll never say that because it's not perfect, and I'm very well aware of the downsides. And especially since I go such long periods of time without smoking now, that when I do smoke, I notice, I make sure to pay attention. I make sure to notice how I'm different. And it can be hard to notice that when you're stoned or when you're just... It can be hard to notice. It can be hard to notice like how something as subtle as marijuana changes the way you think and the way you behave. But for me, the biggest one is just eating. You know, I'm always critical of... I'm critical of this, the stereotypes surrounding weed that it makes you lazy or unmotivated because I've never personally experienced that. Even when I was 20 years old, smoking weed all day, every day, pretty much. You know, I wasn't, I, you know, I wasn't one of these people who ever wanted to be at work high. I've never been one of those people. Not to say I haven't been high at work, but I've never been one of those people who wants to be high at work. I worked with a guy once, a hippie guy, and he would always roll a joint for lunch break. And so I would occasionally go for a walk with him, that kind of thing. But I never enjoyed it that much. I never really liked the idea of being high at work. Um, but, uh, you know, I was somebody who wanted to be high all the time. And uh, even then, though, even being somebody who was high all the time, I was never unmotivated. I was very productive, whether it's creativity, whether it's fitness. What I will say about about creativity or just doing anything is that if I'm smoking weed there's a far greater chance that I will start something and not finish it right away. And I'll kind of leave it hanging for a much longer period of time than I would otherwise. I'll work on things, but I'm way, I'm way more likely to start a bunch of different things and not finish them or finish them later. So it's not that there's nothing to the motivation idea, but it's like it has nothing to do with the desire to do things. And as I've said before, weed bonds to its host. You know, this was eye-opening for me when I used to read about serial killers all the time because you'd come across little bits of information and you're like, oh, Tommy Lynn Sells got stoned before he killed a girl. Or, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer loved smoking weed. He got high right before he killed his first victim. He and the victim uh, smoked weed together. And then he killed the guy with a... He hit him in the head with a barbell. Ted Bundy loved smoking weed. Ann Rule wrote about how, you know, when she worked with Ted Bundy at the suicide hotline, how after he was already... After it was already known he was under investigation as the serial killer, she was talking to him and he was like, hey, you want to go smoke a joint? You know? It's like, if I was under investigation for serial murder, I can't imagine getting high. You know, whether, you know, whether I did it or not, you know, if I was being falsely accused, like I, I can tell you, I would not want to be high with those thoughts in my head. 
And if I was a serial killer, like the idea of getting high when you know somebody's on your trail, when you know the police are, you know, zeroing in on you, I just can't even imagine that. But it was kind of eye-opening for me because I read about that stuff, I think it was before I'd ever smoked weed or maybe around the time that I first smoked weed as a young teenager. And I was like, oh, weed isn't that thing that everybody makes it out to be. It bonds, I didn't use these words at the time, but... The idea is that it bonds to its host. And, uh, you know, you don't smoke weed and immediately... Your beliefs don't just immediately become... Oh, I'm a, I'm a leftist and I love hacky sack. You know, you, you don't immediately go there. A lot of that's cultural. A lot of people are introduced to weed in those sorts of contexts. Like someone gets introduced to weed and the person introducing it to them is like... You know what you got to do is you just got to sit around listening to Bob Marley and playing hacky sack. And you know what you need to do? You need to get a, uh, a Ben and Jerry's ice cream and just sit on the couch and binge watch because that's what weed is for. You know, a lot of people are introduced to weed in that way. And so they think that's what it is. But the reality is it bonds to its host. Whatever it is that you desire is, in my opinion, enhanced by weed and uh what's interesting about that is that if i'm working out for example like when i first got really into running what i used to like to do is i used to like to take an edible and then it would kick in take it a little while before you know maybe before i start my stretching and then right as i started running it would be just creeping in the edible would be just creeping in and you find that you want to go longer. Like some of the longest runs I ever went on, some of the most intense runs that I've ever been on have been when I was just blazed out of my mind. But you find that you kind of just keep going. You know, you're in this, you know, somewhat hypnotic state and you find that your body feels loose. You just, you feel good. Uh, lifting weights too. So it's just interesting in, in that way that it bonds to its host. Because you'd be like, I've heard people say, because I've, I've talked to people about this, and I've had people say, I can't imagine, I can't imagine getting high and exercising. Oh, my God. I just want to sit on the couch and eat Doritas. Dorita. The feminine of Dorito is Dorita. And now we got to call it Doritex. Are you eating Doritex? Stupid joke. Worth, still stupid joke still worth making to read X no but and here's the thing too it's not just that it bonds to its host it also bonds to whatever you're doing in a given moment you know so if you are working out you will keep working out you might even push yourself further than you would otherwise if you're playing guitar you'll probably end up playing for longer you know you'll get into it that's kind of what it does. It kind of gets you into something, whatever it is you're working on, whatever it is you're doing. But it's also true for sitting on the couch. Like if you are sitting on the couch, binge watching, or not even binge watching. Let's say you, your plan is to get high, have a snack, and watch uh, a single episode of something. Chances are you'll be there for eight hours, and you'll have eight snacks. You'll have, you'll have a million snacks. Because you end up 
kind of getting stuck in that process. But the same is true if you actually do something. And that was something I realized with it where I was like, oh, it's very easy for me to waste time if I'm high because I'll keep doing that one activity that I started doing when it kicked in. But if you make sure to commit yourself, like if you take the initiative to start drawing or reading, whatever it is, you'll find that you keep doing it. And so it's not that weed makes you lazy. It's not that it actually affects your work ethic at all. I mean, I think of a a very long-time pot smoker that I'm related to. And he's the hardest working person I've ever known. You know, he's a workaholic. And he uh, certainly isn't lazy. And so I grew up knowing that as well. I, I grew up knowing an older pot smoker who was anything but lazy. So I knew the stereotype wasn't completely true. Even if there is a sort of person, there might be that person out there who has no willpower. But speaking of which, it doesn't matter how disciplined I am, because that's what I was getting to about about the uh, the things that that are the criticisms that are unavoidable where, you know, because it's legal now, I feel like I can criticize it. And even though I don't believe weed makes you lazy and I believe you can actually use weed in conjunction with fitness, with creativity, with just being productive in general, even though I believe all of that, the one thing that I just cannot seem to get around is eating where weed at the end of the night, if I've been smoking weed, I will just eat until I go to bed. Even things I don't like. You know, I remember years and years ago living with a girlfriend and we didn't have much food at the time. And I think I'd already eaten everything else in the house. And she had made some kind of Rice crispy treats for work. And all that was left was a box of just plain Rice Krispies, and they were completely flavorless because they were intended to be used for, you know, making treats. So they were these completely flavorless, just like little bits of puffed rice in a box. And I remember eating those and just thinking, this isn't even enjoyable, and I can't stop. And to this day, no matter how disciplined I am, it's the same thing. And at this point in my life, I don't keep I don't keep anything bad in my house. Like I don't eat candy. I don't eat treats. There's not much sugar. There's not much of anything like that. I don't keep chips. I don't keep crackers around. But it doesn't matter cuz I'll eat other stuff, you know, like I'll eat five protein bars in a row, which has got to be horrible for you. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not as bad as maybe eating an entire cake, eating an entire pizza. I don't know. But it's like I will seriously sit there and eat five protein bars in a row and not even feel satisfied after that. I will wake up and then, it, it, you know, it fucks with my fasting because, you know, I've been doing intermittent fasting for years uh, since, I guess, 2018, maybe 2017. I can't remember exactly, but I've been doing intermittent fasting for a long time consistently. You know, some days I, I don't do it perfectly, but consistently I, I do it pretty much every day now for years. And I aim for 14 hours, but, you know, ideally 16. 
Uh, I just, I just know, you know, I'll give myself a pass and eat after 14 hours, which includes sleep. So it's not like I'm, it's not like it's self torture. And when you get in the rhythm of it, you find that it's, you just feel better doing intermittent fasting. But sometimes like if it's a night where, you know, I decide I'm stoned and I eat five protein bars on top of everything else I've eaten. You wake up and you just feel so disgusting. You feel so bloated. You don't feel right. You know, you don't feel right pretty much the entire day. And so when that happens, what I'll do, I I stick with my fasting. But that means not eating until like 8 o'clock at night sometimes. Like there was one night not that long ago where I stayed up too late. And there's a, a direct relationship between staying up late and eating. Where the later you stay up, when weed is involved, the more likely you're going to be eating until you go to bed. And, you know, I can't be spending a bunch of extra money on food right now. So (laughs) obviously this is pretty much the only dilemma with this. But then it also means you don't end up eating your first meal of the day until it's dark out. But there's something kind of satisfying about that. There's something satisfying about that feeling of waking up just, oh, man, I can't believe I ate that much that late and then you feel your body burn through it like nothing can get around that bloated feeling you have but it's there's something extremely satisfying about doing that and then going as long as you can and not being hungry all day which is probably really fucked up like it's probably really fucked up that you that binge eating you know you'll binge eat and then not feel hungry for 24 hours (laughs) you know uh, but there's something really satisfying about that first feeling of hunger once you've done that. Um, but, but that's my biggest complaint about weed, I think, is just that no matter how disciplined you are, you end up eating, which goes really well with the fitness aspect. Because if you are lifting weights, if you are running, if you are doing these things, you actually should be eating more if you want to build muscle, if you want to maintain your weight or anything like that. So, you know, there's there's a balance to it. Um, but yeah, that's just one of my biggest criticisms of weed is just the fact that no matter how, and and I meet people too, you know, I meet people who smoke weed and they say that they don't get that desire to eat. And for me, like if I smoke weed early in the day, I, there's no issue. It's this, it's directly related to being up at night for whatever reason, it's being up at night that causes me to raid the pantry. But there also is kind of a fuzziness to things. You know, there's other aspects, there's other downsides to it as well. I feel like there is sort of a lack of clarity. Time goes by sometimes too quickly. But in terms of, uh, I don't know, in terms of the way that you think, I think that's, again, you know, a bond, it bonds to its host sort of thing. Where if you make it a point to... I don't know, if you make it a point to to maintain who you are, I don't think weed is so powerful that it changes that. And I can tell you, like, when I'm smoking weed, I'm far less likely to pay attention to the news, to look at Twitter or these things. I'm far less likely to do that, so it's good in that way. Anyway, long tangent on weed. I guess just that because I'm smoking it again, temporarily too, you know, it's like these, I go through a little period where I'm like, yeah, I need something. I need something, and that's one that's not a slippery slope to drinking. Like, I have no desire to drink, so it's like, here's just a little something that's 
pretty mild and there's always this massive anticipation for it. Like because it's so rare that I get into weed anymore and I'll go, I mean, it, until a couple of week, until a few weeks ago, you know, it, it had been, I think six months since I touched it. And before that it had probably been six months too. Um, so it's not something I crave all the time like I did when I was younger. Uh, but when I do smoke it again, I'm very well aware of what it does to me. And there's a good and a bad to that for sure. And there's just something too to having a vice. Like sometimes you just need a little something. And I was never in love with alcohol. Like even though I drank stupid amounts of alcohol, I was never in love with alcohol itself. So I think that's a bonus for me. I'm lucky in that regard because some people genuinely love drinking. They genuinely love alcohol. And I can't imagine what that's like. I like I actually can't imagine it because drinking for me had nothing to do with an innate love for alcohol. Whereas with weed, you know, I, I would say I, I definitely loved weed when I was younger. Now it's just, it is what it is. I'm just glad it's legal so that I can talk honestly about it. And, uh, although I have known some people, cause you will come across people who have stopped smoking weed and they're a little too gung ho against it. Like, they make it sound like it's just catastrophic what it does to people. And I'll listen to them. And actually, I end up agreeing with them on a lot of counts. But for me personally, it's just something that I can't do all the time, but it's nice to have a just a little dose of it. But one thing it does do is it makes me so self-critical. Like, I'll have moments where I'm just like, I mean, I I was thinking about this show, and I was just like, I can't believe I do that. I can't believe I said that. Why do I do that? <laughs> I was just thinking about, like, some of the things I've said recently, especially some of the criticisms, especially some of the random, uh, you know, just, I don't know, talking about, sometimes I'll make reference to people I know, and even though I make an effort to not be a jerk, I'm just like, why did I bring that up? Why did I? Why do I think that it's okay to talk about that? And that's good. I mean, I think you keep yourself in check that way. It's not like you're hating yourself. You're just looking at yourself from a different perspective. But that's rough. That's a harsh light. You know, that's a harsh light to see yourself under sometimes. Uh, and, and you figure, you know, most of the stoners I know are depressed. You know, I mean, I think that's pretty common. Uh, that's another aspect of it, is I, I do think that marijuana contributes to, I wouldn't say it creates depression, but I think it reinforces depression where it already exists. And uh, and isolation, for that matter. I mean, it ties back to the isolation thing, where it's funny, like when I've met girls, like when I was younger especially, there was this common pattern where I would meet a girl when I'm not smoking weed, and I would be totally invested if I liked her. You know, I'd be totally invested and then if I started smoking weed again, like two or three months in, I'd suddenly just be like, eh, sorry, I can't hang out. <laughs> I know that I was completely available a couple months ago when you met me and we've, we've hung out regularly. Uh, I probably won't see you for a couple months. You know, I don't actually say that. I don't, I don't actually do that. But I do suddenly like, I don't really want to talk. I don't really want to go do things. So I can definitely see where like weed and uh, and women don't tend to go together that well for me. 
which is completely fine. You know, I think it's completely fine that those two things aren't completely compatible. Because, um, I mean, I, and I, it's funny, too, because, I mean, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I was about to go down another road, but it doesn't matter. Sometimes i got to catch myself. But uh, with uh, enough weed talk, I think that's enough talk about weed. But I did go for a run today, which was really nice. I think that was my way of celebrating the solstice. And, you know, the reality is I had coronavi and I have lung scarring. I've just had to accept that. You know, I got very sick last March. And it was a very bad cold. And at that time, my symptoms were nothing like coronavi, but my lungs were very sore. It was a strange feeling because I had, you know, a lot of sinus stuff, you know, a little bit going, a little bit of a cough, chills, fevers. I had all of that, but it just seemed like a, a very bad cold, you know, a worse than average cold. And at that time, that was, I got sick. It was March 1st that I knew I, it was that, you know, you get that feeling a couple of days before you get sick where you're like, oh, I think I'm getting sick. But it was March 1st that I was like, oh, I'm actually full-blown sick. And uh, at that point in time, coronavi was still just kind of this peripheral idea floating around. You know, we didn't, it wasn't really something that was being addressed. And uh, the, strain, the only strange thing about this bad cold was that my lungs were sore. And I've never had that, especially because it didn't seem to be like my whatever I had didn't seem to be focused on my lungs. You know, I didn't have some deep cough. What little cough I had, I think, was just drainage. So it was strange to me that my lungs were sore. And at that point in time, nobody was talking about these alternate symptoms. Nobody was talking about, you know, any kind of mild symptoms. The idea was, oh, if you get coronavi, uh, you're going to be in the hospital. That was the idea that was going around. And so I, I didn't really take it entirely seriously, but I, I remained short of breath to this day. To this day, I'm short of breath. And I can actually feel a spot in what feels like my upper lungs on the right side that just, I just feel it. Or I, you know, or maybe it's that I don't feel it. I believe it's actually lung scarring. Um, and I think I've mentioned this on here before over the last, whatever, nine months, however, I guess it's been about nine months since I was sick, but I've remained short of breath and I, I get it, especially when I am walking and talking at the same time. It seems to impact me when I walk up hills too. And before all this, I was a long distance runner for three and a half years. And uh, since then, I haven't really gone running much. I've tested the waters a little bit. And I haven't gone to the doctor, you know, I've, I've free, I've, I've Obamacare insurance. It's a major deal to even just get a regular appointment. I'm grateful to have free insurance, but it's just, you don't get great coverage. And, uh, so I just, I don't, and I, and with everything going on with all these strange processes, I'm a very healthy person aside from that. So I just haven't wanted to go in because what are they even going to do? I mean, it's, it's going to be a referral to maybe a pulmonary specialist and they're going to have to stick something down into my lungs. Maybe who knows what it is. And then I'm probably going to be treated with skepticism, which seems to be par for the course. 
Because, I mean, I appreciate medicine. I appreciate doctors. But it's just bizarre the level of skepticism that they respond to to everything with. And that's because, yeah, they do have junkies. They do have insane hypochondriacs. But it's just one of the reasons I avoid going to the doctor is it just feels like you will inevitably be treated with so much skepticism that it isn't even, it's not even worth it, you know? And, and of course it is if it's a serious enough issue, but it just feels like there's this built-in skepticism. Or I, I would even call it cynicism. I would say there's this sort of cynicism sometimes in medicine and you have to practically beat somebody over the head just to get them to listen to you. Literally beat them. To actually beat the doctor up. Everybody knows me in this town because I beat all the doctors up. But no, I do. I, I you know, and the, and the thing is too. I mean, people are so psych one hundred and one about this stuff because when I expressed to people that I was having shortness of breath long after I recovered from my cold, which was most likely coronavi. It was a corony, uh, uh, whatever. It's going to make a joke. Coroni cold. But, uh, you know, people are like, oh, well, your mom died. Your mom died. You're, you're experiencing psychosomatic issues. Which I'll listen to. You know, because that stuff, in the same way that I'm talking about how isolation can kind of start to creep in. And I'm noticing that now that we are in winter. I've noticed where I can see where isolation has caused certain gears of mine to get rusty. And, uh, you know, so it's not that this stuff doesn't happen. But people, a couple people tried to tell me, oh, it's not that you actually had coronavi. It's that your mom died and you're experiencing some sort of psychosomatic distress that's causing you to hyperventilate or something which is hasn't happened at all you know i haven't experienced any hyperventilation i haven't experienced any panic i just have this feeling on the right side of my lungs and i'm often out of breath as as a windstorm god man windstorms are scary um have you ever been isolated in a windstorm it's kind of like the alternate reality of a womb because you're in this safe, warm place, and things are just hitting the outside. And but uh, anyway, I do believe I had coronavi, and it sucks because even saying that sounds really dramatic. It sounds dramatic. It sounds like something you would say for attention. And of course, I haven't been tested. I don't know how they would even know if there are antibodies. All this stuff is such a confused mess. But it's a reality, you know, and I've just had to accept that I have this shortness of breath and I have this feeling on the right side of my lungs. It, it, it certainly feels like lung scarring, as they talk about. And, but the thing is about all this, here's what I'll say about this, is I have a tendency to ignore when these things are being discussed. I've paid enough attention to people who know what they're talking about to know that a lot of people who were either asymptomatic or they had mild symptoms, have since experienced long-term damage to their lungs. So this is actually something that has happened to quite a few people who had the coronavi, which is long-term damage despite mild symptoms. And But beyond that, I don't really, I don't like listening to this stuff. When I hear people talking about it, I turn it off. 
And it reminds me of my friend Robert, who he was a runner. And he went to the doctor, and the doctor told him he had a heart condition that he didn't know he had. And he, he always blamed that doctor for telling him that. Because he felt like if he didn't know that he had a heart condition, it never would have been an issue, and he would still be running to this day. He felt that the doctor essentially planted a seed in his mind. And, you know, and of course, it's kind of funny. Like, it's obviously not the doctor's fault. But I do kind of think that way myself. I mean, there's a reason why this guy's my friend, where I kind of have a similar outlook, where if I don't know that something is an issue, my mind isn't going to let it be an issue. And so in some ways, while I want to get this figured out, I figure the less that I know, all this... I mean, to me, the idea, the pornography of Coronivai. There's people who have a pornographic, perverse interest in... What are they even calling a novelty vi? It's the novel vi. But these people who just immerse themselves in every little... Every way the wind blows around the topic of coroni vi, they're just all about it. They're just reading all the, all the latest info, a lot of which is conflicting, a lot of which is confusing. That's not me. The less I know, the better. Hopefully this isn't permanent, but if it is, it's been a good life. You know, if this is the one issue that I, I'm going to have to deal with moving forward is a little bit of lung scarring or something, you know, it's been a good life. I can do other things. I can make do. The less I know, the better. You know, while I wouldn't hold it against a doctor who gave me a diagnosis, I do completely understand my friend being like, that doctor <laughs> ruined my life when he told me I couldn't run anymore because of my heart condition. And I do kind of, I do believe in a mind over matter sort of mentality where if the doctor doesn't tell you about your heart condition, your heart condition never does anything. Or if it does, well, hey, if you have a heart attack while you're running a marathon, well, hey, you know, it was a big mystery up until that point. And if you live, you live. And if you die, you die. So I, I definitely understand that the idea of not wanting to be told not because of denial, but because there is something to mind over matter. But anyway, I did go for a run today. It had been since July. And now you're going to have the honor of listening to me talking about run, running again. It's, it's the Christopher Columbus syndrome. Uh, there was a, a mobster. Well, we just lost power. Probably sounded like nothing. Sounded like nothing to you. But we just lost power. And I hope it's not going to be one of those nights where it flickers on and off. Because if it's just going to be off, I'll light some candles. I'll hang out, draw, read, do what I got to do. The nights that are really frustrating in the winter, in the winter, are when the power goes on and off repeatedly. It's almost like some sort of torture mechanism. We're like It's like kind of like where they don't let prisoners sleep. You've heard... There are forms of torture where they don't let a prisoner sleep. Like every time he starts to nod off, the guard screams. It's a way of getting information out of somebody because that causes you to break. And that's kind of what having the power go on and off is like, where it's almost like just when you're getting comfortable with the idea of not having power, it comes back on. And just when you start to trust that the power is going to stay on, it goes back off. So if it's going to go out, I, I 
I'm fine with it going out, but I like it when it's consistent. Uh, but anyway, I was about to go into a story. What I was saying, Christopher Columbus. It's very easy to to become Christopher Columbus with anything you do. With anything you do in life. Uh, but it reminds me of a story. There was a mobster in New York. Where else? Actually, a lot of places, but a lot of them are in New York, that's for sure. But there was a mobster who, he had operated in Manhattan. And then he ended up moving to Brooklyn or I think he took over a crew. I think what it was is he was a Manhattan-based guy. And what's funny is, like, I don't, I've never even been to New York. For as much as I read about New York, I'll look at New York on a map. Like, I feel like I know New York better than I know, you know, places in my own home state. But I've never been there. It's just I happen to be interested in something that relates to New York. But anyway, this guy, he was based in Manhattan. I think he, he ended up becoming captain of a crew of other mobsters who were based in Brooklyn. And another mobster told a story after he cooperated where he was like, yeah, Jackie, uh, you know, I called him Christopher Columbus because he came to Brooklyn and he was acting like he was discovering everything for the first time. He would say like, hey, have you been to uh, Tommaso's restaurant? Oh, I, I got this great restaurant you should check out. And it turns out it's a place that all the Brooklyn guys have always gone to. But because this guy is new to Brooklyn, he's like, I, I know this I know this new restaurant. I know this wonderful place. And I often feel that way when I start doing something new that other people have already done, or if it's a thought that other people have always thought. I mean, it's kind of how I feel when I talk about, you know, positive thinking or love or whatever else. I'm like, have you heard of this thing called love? Have you heard of this thing called loving your your fellow man? And it's like, yeah, it's that shit that everybody around you has always been talking about. (laughs) You know, it's that thing that everybody else has already been aware of. Oh, have you heard about this thing called medit... I think it's... I think you pronounce it meditation. Meditation. Mediterranean... Meditation, I think is how you say it. You know, it's like this thing that other people have been doing all this time, thousands upon thousands of years, forever, basically. And it's very easy to become Christopher Columbus about all this stuff. I did think it was funny, though, those mobsters nicknamed their guy Christopher Columbus because he was acting like he was discovering everything in Brooklyn as if nobody else had had been there or found it before. But I feel that way myself, and it's how I feel whenever I get into something new and I can't stop talking about it. It's what your friends do when they meet a new girl or a new guy, and they suddenly everything connects to that person. Everything connects to their new girlfriend or their new boyfriend, which you shouldn't be mad at your friends about. You know, that's an exciting phase to be in where your world starts to revolve around someone new. And it just so happens you find a way to talk about them in every conversation. Oh, it's the solstice. You know what? That kind of reminds me of Gwendolyn. Because, you know, uh, she told me, uh, you know, her grandma's birthday was on the solstice. And because of that, they would always celebrate the solstice and her grandma's birthday on the same day. You know, oh, uh. Oh, there's a football game on TV? That reminds me of Gwendolyn, because, you know, her dad played football in high school. and uh... It's very easy to get into that mode. I mean, you become Christopher Columbus about people. You're becoming Christopher Columbus about people. You're acting like you're the first person to ever discover this person. 
Um, but I tend to do that and I, I always recognize it <laughs> when I'm doing it because it's like, whoa, TV's back on now. I got to hold on. This is just a mess because the thing is the TV was on just, just so you know the environment you're listening to. Just to give you sort of an atmospheric description, the power went out. I had the TV on in the other room with a football game on on mute. But because the TV went off. Now that the cable just came back, it, the TV came back on, but it wasn't on mute. So I'm going to go mute it. And I'm actually not going to pause this because I want to give you 10 seconds of atmosphere. Just imagine being in my kitchen right now if I wasn't talking. And th that's what you'll hear for the next 10 seconds. Yeah, all right. Uh, yeah, it's the Cincinnati Bengals and the Pittsburgh Steelers, and I can't imagine a game that I'd be less interested in. I have it on on mute just because I still want to get a glimpse. I still want to see what's going on in the game. But the Steelers, as usual, are an incredibly good team this year, and the Bengals are abysmally bad. And oftentimes they'll reschedule those. Like, it's a Monday night football game, and oftentimes if a season shakes out to where it's going to be a really good team against a really bad team. They'll actually reschedule Monday night football so that two good teams are playing. But this season has been such a, a mess with like teams having to skip weeks for Corona and all of that, uh, that, uh, you know, I guess they can't reschedule this game, but <clears throat> it's a game that I couldn't care less about. You know, you have to figure it's like, I don't like watching the Steelers ever. The only thing I like about the Steelers is that that was my youth football team. When I played youth football, we were called the Steelers, and we wore uniforms that were a direct replica of them. So I have fond memories of that. But when it comes to the actual team, the real, the real pro football team, the Steelers, uh, I just I cannot stand them. They beat the Seahawks in a very controversial Super Bowl many years ago, and I'm just not a fan. And so the idea of watching them just completely destroy the Bengals just doesn't sit well with me. But because the only reason I'm paying for TV still is so I can watch football, I feel the need to have it on. And the thing is, too, is even when I tell myself I'm not going to be invested in a game, because, you know, if it's the Seahawks or the Cowboys or the Raiders, you know, I, I, with AFC teams, I do like the Raiders. I, I always root for the Raiders. Rooting for the Raiders, huh? Uh, you know, the, so it's like if it's the Seahawks or the Cowboys, unless they're playing each other, I'm always going to root for them. But uh, with uh, with other games, like I'll tell myself, I'll, I'll watch another game and I'll be like, I don't care who wins. This is just for the fun. I'm just going to watch this game for the fun of it. And then sure enough, like a quarter in, I'm rooting for one of the teams, and sometimes very passionately. It's like, oh, it's the uh, it's the Tennessee Titans against the Indianapolis Colts, two teams that I, I honestly couldn't care less about. You know, by the second quarter, I'm rooting for the Colts. So it's just funny how that works, where simply watching is investing. <laughs> you know, even when you tell yourself, I'm not going to invest in this game, I find myself choosing a team. Think about how that happens in other aspects of your life. 
Are there other aspects of your life where you tell yourself you're not going to get invested and then all of a sudden you find yourself completely in it, into it? Probably. There's probably a lot of things. I think that's what happens politically. I think that's what happens. I think that's what happens when you vote. Even if you're voting for the lesser of two evils, I think that's exactly what plays out when you vote. You're like, eh, I'm not really invested. I'm voting for the lesser of two evils. And then come election day, you're like, go Joe Biden, go Joe, go, go, go. You know, you end up, uh, Joe Obama won, dude. Dude, you hear the news, Joe Obama, Joe Obama won. You know, next thing you know, you're that person. Joe Obama won, dude. Dude, come here and smoke some weed. Joe Obama won. Dude, you're smoking weed, but you're a Republican? How could that be, dude? How could a Republican smoke weed and not change his mind? Speaking of which, that relative I mentioned, everybody probably knows who I'm talking about, but that older relative I mentioned who I who proved to me growing up that being a stoner didn't make somebody lazy. That person also taught me that being a stoner didn't make you a liberal either. Because that particular person is definitely not on the left. So I grew up knowing this heavy weed smoker. Didn't find out he was a weed smoker until I was a little bit older. But I grew up with this weed smoker in my life. I called him Dad. I knew him as Dad. Um, I know him as Dad. Uh, But I I grew up with this weed smoker who was not lazy and was not a hippie. So that was a lesson that the stereotypes aren't always as they are portrayed. Um, But uh, anyway, uh, I was talking about football. Oh, yeah, just the way people invest in things. In the same way that I will invest in a game between two teams that I don't care about, even when I've told myself I don't care. Even when I've told myself as I sit down, oh, beautiful, a game I don't care about. I can just watch it and enjoy the game because I, I do love the game of football. But I sure enough, I end up cheering. I end up invested, especially if I and you know what? It usually comes down to whether I like or don't like a player. Like if a team has a player that I can't stand. I will inevitably, even if I never heard of him. Sometimes I'll be watching a game between two teams I never watch, and there'll be a player I've never heard of, and I just get this bad feeling about them. And next thing you know, I'm wanting them to lose. So it's just funny how that plays out. Another funny thing is just with sports gear. You know, I was thinking about just what I said about, oh, I'm a fan of the Seahawks, Cowboys, and I'll also root for the Raiders. As far as AFC teams, yeah, I want the Raiders to win. Um... But I have hats of all those teams. I have I have tons of Seahawks gear. I have ton more Seahawks gear that I know what to do with. But I also have a Cowboys hat and I have a uh, Raiders hat. But it's funny how things have changed, and I, I think that this has been reflected politically as well. Where when I was growing up, you could wear any sports merchandise of any team that you wanted, and nobody would ever question it. You know, you had kids in Lakers jerseys wearing. Charlotte Hornets starter jackets with Chicago Bulls shorts, you know, and a Dallas Cowboys hat. You know, you could walk around looking like that and nobody thought anything of it. Nobody said, well, what team do you really like? Pick a team, dude. There was just this general celebration of 
professional sports, and you could wear anything you wanted as a fashion statement, too, you know, and it was colorful. And, you know, as much as I kind of, I'm very self-conscious of, of 90s nostalgia because, you know, my generation loves that. And we look back on the 90s very fondly. And part of that's because we were all in a bubble, you know, because even people who weren't wealthy, they were running up their credit cards. You know, people who maybe shouldn't have been living well in the 90s were living well through credit. And it was just people were in a bubble. No matter what it was that brought somebody inside of that bubble, and of course not everybody was in the bubble. Not everybody was in the bubble. Oh, is the bubble like the womb? Maybe. It's a bubble womb, which sounds disgusting. Um, But no matter what it was that got you inside of the bubble, whether it was running up credit cards or whether you were, you know, part of a part of maybe you started the first Internet startup company. You know, whatever it was that got you inside the bubble in the 90s, a lot of people were in that bubble. And so I think that's one of the reasons why people look back so fondly is for that. But you also look at the way people express themselves. And like I was talking about, you know, you would see kids in these multicolored starter jackets for one team while wearing basketball shorts for another thing. And people were just these balls of color. They were like these flowers walking around. And uh, nobody cared, you know, it was just like, it was all about just, we like sports gear. We like sports gear. We're in the bubble. We're in the bubble and we like sports gear. You know, that was the attitude of the 90s, you know. And then something I noticed happening around, I guess I didn't become aware of it until probably the early 2010s. But I noticed a lot more people were like, you can only like one team. You can only wear merchandise for that team. And I saw it with both people I know personally, because I kind of started to act that way. I started to think, maybe I shouldn't wear a, a Cowboys hat and a Seahawks shirt at the same time. I, I, I kind of became conscious of the fact that I wear an L.A. Raiders hat around. And when people would see that, they would bring it up as if I'm the biggest Raiders fan in the world. It's not that I'm not a fan, but it's, you know, I like it. I like the hat. But there there was this expectation I started to notice where if you wear sports merchandise, you better be a diehard fan of that team and only that team, boy. And I noticed it online, too. It was something I saw in person, but I also noticed it online because I used to read this, uh, I guess you'd call it a forum. Basically, it was a place where smart people talked about the NFL, or I thought they were smart. It was, it was framed as, you know, a smart person's place to discuss football. And I noticed more and more that, like, people were critical of anyone who liked more than one team. People were thought of as fence sitters or, or just, uh, what do you call it, um, fair weather fans there's another word I'm looking for here that probably doesn't matter, but it's a word everyone uses. Um, but Fairweather fan describes it. You know, just somebody who kind of goes, they just they just roll with the they roll with the ocean wherever the ocean takes them. Whatever team wins, because that was the other thing about the '90s is you could love the team who's good at any given moment, and nobody questioned it. It was like, oh, the Dallas Cowboys are winning you know, the Super Bowl every other year. 
They won the Super Bowl three times. And you know what was seen as totally acceptable? Becoming a fan of the best team. It's why everyone was a Chicago Bulls fan. It's like this is just amazing to witness. It's simply amazing to see Michael Jordan play and to see a team like the Bulls win so many championships. And you could just like the people who are good. And it wasn't seen as a character flaw. People were like, oh, you know, yeah, I like the team that wins. It's fun to watch them. And that doesn't mean abandoning your team because I was a fan of the Seahawks when they were 2-14. and You know, I was a fan of the Seahawks when they were just not winning at all. So it wasn't that I abandoned my love for my team, but especially as a kid. You know, when you're a little kid, you don't really understand, you don't really understand how that builds character. You know, you don't understand how that builds character to be a fan of a team through thick and thin. So you kind of need to have a Dallas Cowboys or a Chicago Bulls because as a kid, you want to have some fun. You want to be able to watch a game and be like, you know what, the the team I'm rooting for wins some of the time, a lot of the time. But I also just think people were far less severe about just liking who is good. I mean, imagine that, you know, applied to music or something where it's like, you know, oh, I'm a fan of, uh, I'm a fan of Iron Maidens. I'm a fan of the Iron Maidens and I'm a fan of the Judas Priests. And it's like, pick one. And of course people do. People play their little Beatles and Stones games. But at the same time, nobody really has a problem with the fact that you love Iron Maiden and you love Judas Priest too. And nobody has a problem with the fact that they're really good. Yet in sports, there's this idea that if you like a team that's simply, if you like a team because they're good, that you're somehow, you're a douche, you're a douchebag. You know, there's that idea. And I understand why that is, but it's just funny to me that it's become even more common. Like in the 90s, it was acceptable to be a Cowboys and Bulls fan. But I've seen over the last, I would say definitely in the last 10 years, but kind of like with the ceremony thing, all this stuff is gradually happening, whether you see it happening moment to moment or not. And so this lean toward, you know, this, this lean into only liking one team and, and you're not allowed to like the team that's good at any, at any given time just because they're good. You're not allowed to like the New England Patriots just because they were winning Super Bowls left and right. You're not allowed to like Tom Brady because he's a good player and fun to watch. You have to be a lifelong New England fan to root for Tom Brady. You know, that I saw that idea creep in, so it was probably happening over a longer span of time, but it was just interesting to see it happen and that we now exist in a time where if you wear a, you know, a a mix of sports clothing, people might be like, pick a side. And we see that politically too. You know, I think politics have mirrored that. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't think it's a coincidence that our politics are way more focused on pick a side, agree with everything they agree with, and never acknowledge any truth in the other side. Because I mean, that's kind of what it is on a sports level. When you say that somebody can only like one team or only wear one team's merchandise. And, you know, when you think about people's nostalgia for the 90s, I mean, it makes sense because people got to feel like a colorful flower floating around. A yellow Lakers hat. 
a white and orange and teal Miami Dolphins jacket. Oh, a big teal Miami Dolphins jacket complemented by orange with a yellow Lakers hat and green supersonic shorts. It's like you're this colorful flower bouncing around. Getting a lot of pleasure out of sports too, because you're, because the the nice thing about you know, being a fair weather fan who only likes the good teams is you're always having a great time. And I'm not that person. Just I gotta say that you know I don't I don't like a team just for being good, but I will enjoy watching them. You know I'm not wearing Kansas City Chief merch because they're the best team these days, but uh. You know, at the same time, though, I will get enjoyment out of it. I will appreciate them. And that was a big thing for me with the Patriots because I hated the Patriots like everybody else. They beat the Seahawks in the Super Bowl. The Cheetahs, the Cheetahs, they're uh, snooty New Englanders. They think they got the best lobster in town. You know, there was all sorts of reasons to hate the New England Patriots. And then there was one day where I just realized, well, for one, they played the Panthers in the Super Bowl and I couldn't stand Cam Newton. So I was like, you know what? I want the Patriots to win. And after that, I was kind of like, you know what? They're not so bad. Maybe I can just appreciate the fact that I'm watching history. Maybe I can just appreciate the fact that Tom Brady is an absolute legend. And it's much better to appreciate him while he's playing than to look back in 10 years and be like, well, you know, it was kind of amazing watching Tom Brady play. Too bad I hated him at the time. No, I'm glad that I kind of had a moment where I was like, you know what, I can just appreciate the fact that I'm watching a really good team. That doesn't mean that I choose them. It doesn't even mean I'm a fan of the team. Because I wouldn't say I'm a New England Patriots fan. I wouldn't say I'm a fan. But, I, you know, and, and I guess they're no longer that team anymore, as evidenced by this season. But I was able to appreciate them for a few years because I was just like, hey, it's kind of great to watch a really good team. And I'm glad that I've gotten over myself. And I can just enjoy watching them. Uh, but uh, it's, you know, I don't think it's a total coincidence that we've kind of seen a similar attitude in politics. Where it's like, pick a side. And uh, make sure everything you say and do is in perfect harmony with that side. Even though that side will try to eat you. Even though the people you think are your friends will try to eat you. Anyway, uh, back to the solstice, you know, I think it's a good day to, I think it's good to have a ceremonial day and a ceremonial winter day too. I definitely put more emphasis on the winter solstice than I do. Like I said, I don't even know if there are three other solstices or one. I don't even know. I'm not even going to look it up. But, you know, also, uh, I mean, this is going to be the first Christmas that I'm completely by myself, uh, which, you know, it's, it's sad. I don't feel, I don't feel that sad about it. You know, in in a way I'm kind of glad I don't have the pressure of traveling. I'm kind of glad it's just going to be a weird day, but it's not going to be good or not. I mean, I I shouldn't say that. I think it's going to be a good day. Like, I think I'm going to enjoy Christmas. I think, you know, I'm going to be in touch with family. I I think it's going to be a good day. But what I mean is it's like there's going to be some sort of underbelly to that day. And if you go in knowing that, it's not an issue. You know, if you go in knowing that, it's just like, yeah, there's an underbelly to this day. 
It's the second Christmas without my mom, but last year she had gotten all of her presents that she was going to get for people before she died. So she still, not that the material side of that matters, but it does in a way, because it's not about the material side. She had some sort of presence. You know, last year, while she wasn't a part of Christmas, she nonetheless still had a presence. And I think, too, last year, I was in such a frenzy, because you figure Christmas was exactly two weeks after my mom died. So I was in a frenzy. I had so much to do. I was dealing with so much. I had so many people, so many places to contact. Plus, I wrapped all the gifts that my mom bought. Plus, I've decided I yell random words here. No, but I wrapped all the gifts my mom had bought for, you know, my sister, brother-in-law, my little sister, me. So even a couple of her friends. So, you know, I was so busy and I was in such a frenzy and I I was also floating, as I've explained before. You know, I was in this, I was just, I felt like I was just hovering around the earth. So this year, there's the absence, you know, because Christmas is, that was my mom's holiday. Christmas was the holiday that my mom really expressed herself through. She expressed her generosity, her attitude. She expressed so much of that through Christmas that it's like, you can't recreate that. And then my birthday's a couple days after Christmas. And so, you know, she always did, she, you know, she always made my birthday feel special. Um, So, you know, I'm dealing with that this year. I'm not terribly worried about it. It's just a little weird. And uh, I just have to accept that there will be an underbelly. There will be an underside that I won't be able to push out of my brain. But I'm going to find a way to make it work. And, uh, you know, my sister asked if I wanted to do a Zoom call. A Zoom call. I haven't used that yet. I know at some point, maybe for a professional reason, for something or another, I might have to use Zoom. I don't want to use it if I don't have to, though. I don't want to use it if I don't have to. There's something... I don't want to get too out there into the conspiracy weeds, although that sounds really nice. The conspiracy weeds... Oh, do you mean conspiracy weed? Conspiracy weed. No, the conspiracy weeds, the ones you wade out into. But I find something really strange about Zoom. Zoom. I find something really strange about Zoom. I'm going to use its proper name. Because I don't want to confuse it with Generation Zomer. So I'll I'll use its proper brand name, which is Zoom. And I just find something incredibly sinister about it. Not even on a, it's not even as clear cut as like, oh, it's obviously a, a method of surveillance. It's not even that. There's just, there's something I don't even know how to define about it. And I felt that way ever since the Coronavi hit and the locker down, the lockdowner, Ever since that hit and people, suddenly everybody's using this thing because it's apparently easy and it works. It serves a very clear purpose. But as part of a job I had, a big part of my job was researching web conferencing software. And so I had to stay up to date on what was coming out. And I tested a lot of it. You know, the company I worked for, we used basically web conferencing software, but pretty much 
things like Zoom. And as a result, I had to research it all the time and test it out. And at that point in time, I'd never heard of it. And that wasn't that long ago. Two or three years ago, maybe. At that point in time, I I hadn't heard of it. I, I know Zoom existed, but it wasn't something that we considered using. It wasn't part of the conversation. It didn't come up in my research. Nobody was really pushing it that I saw. And so for it to come out when it did with the popularity that it has, it's probably just some sort of like tipping point moment where it was just, it was like ready for mass consumption and this set of circumstances happened at the right time for Zoom to take off. But I, I do find it strange that I had never heard of it or considered it when a part of my job that I took seriously involved researching that kind of software, those kinds of programs, applications. And maybe I just overlooked something. Maybe I overlooked it, but it's just, it's weird to me that it kind of came out of nowhere and that, I don't know, you know, I, I like phone calls. I've never done FaceTime. I've never done, you know, yeah, I've talked to people through webcam before. I've done Skype through webcam. I don't, I don't like that though. I don't like looking at someone on a camera while I talk to them. I like the voice. I feel like a special sort of magic comes out when you talk over the telephone. And I especially just, I don't know, I want to protest using this thing as long as I can. That's what I'm going to call it. I'm not going to call it Zoom. I'm not going to call it Zoom. I'm just going to call it this thing. I'm trying to avoid using it as long as possible unless I absolutely have to for survival, like a professional reason. And my sister asked me if I wanted to do a Zoom call, and like I thought, that's sweet. And maybe I will. Maybe I will want to download it. It would be nice to see them and everything. But I was like, you know, let's plan on a phone call. And then another friend of mine, who it turns out I haven't seen in like two years, even though he lives in town here. Uh, He and his uh, girlfriend are friends of mine. And we used to see each other all the time. We used to drink together all the time and hang out all the time. But... Time is just such a, a mutant in my life that like two years, I don't doesn't even feels like two days. But no, he was asking me if I wanted to do a Zoom call to catch up, and I just said, you know, again, phone call. I know it's nice to see people, but whenever there's a camera thing, whenever there's a, a webcam thing, I it's not even a vanity or narcissism thing, but I just inevitably get distracted where I keep looking at myself on it. It's just distracting. It's just distracting. You know, it is, though. There's something distracting about that. And it doesn't feel natural. It doesn't feel comfortable. Like, I don't feel I don't feel myself. Like, I don't feel like I'm sitting down with somebody. And, and th- that's the thing about phone calls, too. It's a, for the same reason that podcasts... This is going to be something that blows people's minds in five years. Because, you know, Generation Y... The millennials and Generation Zome, the Zomers, you know, they're all about this, like, I don't even understand talking on the phone. What is talking on the phone again? Oh, I get anxious. My anxiety goes haywire when someone calls, you know. They have that attitude. But I guarantee you in five years, they will be Christopher Columbus and rediscover phone calls. And they'll not shut up about it. In five years, I guarantee you that 21-year-olds are going to be talking on the phone all the time. It's going to be like podcasts where it's like, there's this new thing and it's just somebody talking. 
It's this new thing that people have been doing forever. Oh, have you heard of podcasts? It's almost like nothing like that has ever existed. By the way, I hate the voices I do nowadays. I feel like there was a sweet spot where I had like the right voices. The voices I do on this show now are just, uh, it's another symptom of isolation. It's another symptom of isolation. So I'm just letting you know, if you hate the voices that I do on this show, or they're just embarrassing and stupid, imagine how I feel about them. But no, people are going to become Christopher Columbus and rediscover phone calls in five years, and they're going to act like it's something totally new. And that's totally okay, because talking on the phone is where it's at. Uh, but uh, there's a magic to it, too, because you're not being watched. You're not sitting there, like, thinking about... You're not trying to make eye contact through a screen while trying not to look at yourself and trying not to let the person that you're supposed to be making eye contact with realize you're just looking at yourself. Because <laughs> that's the other thing. It's not just that you end up looking at yourself in the webcam. It's that you don't want the other person to realize that you're looking at yourself. Like if you ever, if you've ever taken like one of those mirror selfies where you like, uh, well, I mean, everybody knows what a mirror selfie is. Everybody knows what a mirror selfie is. Um, where you just stand in front of the mirror and like hold your phone out and take a photo. It's really hard not to look at the phone. And I, I, I mean, I've taken so few of those types of photos, but when I see photos of other people, I look at their eyes. Cause I'm like, cause I've seen pictures of couples who are like going out on a date, like a married couple. It's date night. They're going out for date night. <laughs> uh, Um, but I'll see photos of couples like who are all dressed up going out on date night and they'll take like a a mere selfie, a mere selfie, M-E-R-E, a mere selfie, but they'll take a mirror selfie and I'll look at their eyes and they're both looking at themselves in the camera, in the, in the phone. Like they're both looking at, they're both looking at what the camera is seeing which is really funny to me because you'd think that they would want to like make eye contact with the viewer as people typically do in photos. So it's funny to me that all these photos of people taking selfies, they're actually just looking at themselves. And when you do FaceTime or webcam chats, Skype, whatever it is, people zoom, 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 you know, whenever people do that, it's, it's funny to me where it's like, it's not just, not looking at yourself. It's not letting the other person know that you're looking at yourself. What a weird world we live in. What a weird world. But uh, Christopher Columbus, I didn't finish that thought earlier, which is that I I ran for the first time today in a very long time. And, uh, you know, I always struggle with something. When something is new to me, I want to talk about it all the time to the point where it's annoying, especially if it's something that other people already know about. Like, imagine being really into a band your entire life, and somebody you know suddenly gets into them, and they're like, gee, like, I didn't realize uh, the Judas Priest had such good riffs. And you're like, yeah, I've been listening to them for 30 years. It's all about the riffs. What do you think they did? What did you think Judas Priests did? What do you think the Judas Priest did? 
I don't know, but uh, they got crazy riffs. Let me tell you, they got. I just didn't know they did these sort of harmonies and all this stuff. Uh, that's what they do. What do you mean you didn't know they did all these harmonies? That's that's what they do. This sounds like the same person talking to himself, which it turns out it is. Um, but it's almost like that, where that's how I feel whenever I f- discover something new. I feel like I'm telling some, I'm telling people something they already know and or they don't care about. Uh, but uh, with, uh, you know, doing something that you haven't done in a while, you can become Christopher Columbus about that, about that too. And so now I'm running the risk where, like, if I start running again, I'm going to start talking about running again. And I'm going to talk about the experience of starting running again. And uh, so I'm just giving you a a warning that if I start running again, I'm going to start talking about it again, and it's going to be torture for everybody. It's going to be torture. Um, I'm going to become Christopher Columbus about things I already discovered, things that I already Christopher Columbus once. I'm going to Christopher Columbus again. Uh, but I'm just glad I can run because, as I was mentioning, I, I do believe I had coronavirus. I haven't made a big, bold announcement, and I haven't been properly diagnosed, but I do believe back in March I had coronavirus, and it left some lung scarring, as has been common, it turns out. I think 40% of people who had symptoms like mine, which were mild, uh, it turns out have actually experienced lung scarring. And keep in mind how healthy I was. You know, I was a long-distance runner right up to that point. I eat and live a very healthy lifestyle. So if it did some damage on me, yeah, that's something. But I'm not going to think about it. And what's interesting is that I can run at all. And I've probably run about five times in the last six months. I haven't been doing it at all. Uh, and, I mean, scratch that. Probably I've, I've run probably nine times in the last nine months. Five times... I'm just losing numbers here, but I've I've probably gone running five times in the last nine months is what I meant to say. But I've been able to do it. And what's interesting is whatever the issue is with my lungs, it causes me trouble when I'm walking and talking. Like if I'm walking uphill, I have way less breath than I ever had. And if I'm talking and walking at the same time, I'm way shorter breath. I'm of way shorter breath than ever before. And if I'm walking and talking, I lose my breath very quickly. But what's interesting is that I don't seem to have much of an issue running. Even though I haven't gone running since July, I ran for about 40, 45 minutes. And it was a run, you know, it was more of a run than a jog. And despite all that, I managed pretty well. And I think what it is, is that when I run, I'm pulling from deep in the bottom of my lungs. Whereas when I'm walking and talking, I think that it's sort of an upper lung thing. I think that I'm using different parts of my lungs, but I'm planning to keep running. I thought it was a nice thing to do on the solstice. I felt like shit earlier today. I went for a run for the first time in a very long time. And that to me felt like all the ritual I need for this here solstice. Running on the solstice made me feel a part of everything again. And maybe if I keep running, I'll strengthen my lungs up again and whatever the lung scarring issue is, will be more manageable. We'll see, but that's my plan with that. Uh, but yeah, Christopher Columbus. 
be aware of the ways in which you are Christopher Columbus. Like when you discover something new, do you suddenly start talking about it? Is it almost as if you're the very first person to do that thing? That's part of the fun of life, though. You know, you don't ever want to discourage yourself from being excited. You want to be aware of your audience. Like if you started meditating and you're talking to somebody who's been meditating 30 years and you say to them, hey, have you heard of this thing called meditating? Let me tell you all about it. You know, be conscious of the fact that they, while they might be a good person to talk to about it, and they might be happy to have somebody who they can relate to, remember that they've been there. But the same is true for somebody who doesn't meditate and really doesn't care. Because when I start doing something, it's very easy for me to tell somebody, have you ever considered this? Have you ever considered uh, maybe doing a little meditating and then a little running? You know, it's very easy for me to start talking like that. I, you know, even even being aware of it, I start doing it. Uh, and it's because I'm Christopher Columbus. A lot of people don't know this. I don't look very Italian or Portuguese or Spanish or whatever he actually is. I think he was, I think he was an Italian sailing for the span the Spaniards. Can't remember exactly what it is. Cristoforo Colombo. His name wasn't Christopher Columbus. I like how this guy. <laughs> I do kind of like that. How this guy. You know, he's credited with discovering America. You know, he was the first person in that part of the world, maybe, to have come here. And we don't even use his real name. We don't even use his name as it actually was said. We use this Americanized version of his name, which seems kind of perfect. You know, that that actually does seem kind of perfect that we refer to him as Christopher Columbus rather than his original name. And uh, a lot of people would be happy about that. Be like, he doesn't deserve to get called his real name. I don't know. I, I don't judge Christopher Columbus, but I do think that that mob nickname for the guy is perfect, and I feel it about myself. I mean, I'm I'm very aware of the ways in which I become Christopher Columbus about things, and I'm aware of it in others. You know, and it's it's part of the fun of life, though, is you discover things that other people know. You have epiphanies late in life. You change. I mean, that's all part of the excitement. You want things to you want things to be that way. You know, because that's part of the astonishment. That's part of the astonishment, and that's how you stay mentally and spiritually healthy, is to stay astonished. And part of the astonishment is discovering new things that you already knew existed. And think about that for a second. Discovering something new that you already knew existed. You know, any time, you know, that can happen any time. It's it's not something you can plan. It's again, it's about activation. You know, it, it's about awareness, it's about activation. Cuz in, in order to be astonished, you have to be aware. And that's one of the things that honestly keeps me going personally. Even when I feel like, you know, even when I feel like my life has some split ends that need to be trimmed, I think having that sense of astonishment keeps me in the right place. I'm amazed that all of this exists. I'm amazed that I can see it, that I can hear it, that I can hear about it. 
I'm amazed that we do the things we do. The good and the bad, and of course the in-between. I enjoy the fact that we have a day when winter starts. You know, I like the fact that human beings are like, today is the day, ceremonially, officially. Today marks the start of winter. Even though so much of life is this gradual process. I think it's cute that we... I I think it's cute that we make announcements and we set aside certain days and we assign them significance and that travels over time and changes and, you know, because people always say, oh, well, you know, uh, Christmas was originally a pagan holiday where they were doing this. It was Yule. It was y'all. And I don't know why that's an argument. I don't understand why there's this argument about, oh, well, this thing that you think is a Christian holiday was originally a pagan holiday that the Christians absorbed and changed to fit their narrative, but they're really celebrating this thing that all the pagan folks celebrated forever, and they appropriated it, and blah, blah, you know, I don't understand why that's an argument. To me, it just, that tells me that more than one group of people saw the significance in celebrating something a certain way at a certain time every year. That's, that is what, that's what I see. It's similar to the argument that, you know, not the argument, it's similar to the idea that's come up on here before about like when you notice that there are parallels between different religions in different parts of the world and striking parallels. You know, when you compare two religions and you see that there's some sort of oddly similar, you know, or there's something oddly similar or oddly comparable between them, you know, your impulse, especially when you're younger, is to go, oh, that just shows how they're both bullshit. Shows you how they're both bullshit. You know, oh, the, the fact that this thing happens in this way and it's oddly similar to the, you know, oh, hey, Christianity and Islam aren't that far apart when you actually look at, you know, what's in the scripture. That means they're both bullshit. But then, like, you, when you look at more, when you look at more of the universals, when you compare more religions and you see commonalities, what seemed like bullshit when you compared two starts to seem like some sort of just universal, essential fact when you see that multiple different belief systems in different parts of the world at different times, who seemingly had no direct influence on each other, came to similar conclusions or used similar symbols or commemorated certain times of year, whatever it is, it could be anything. When you start to see that commonality between many groups you kind of retrace your steps and go, oh, this thing that I thought was bullshit seemed like it was bullshit when I was stuck in this false dichotomy between two religions. But when I expanded the view to include all sorts of different religions, I started to see that there is something both universal and essential about this. And so that's sort of my attitude when people talk about, you know, the pagan history of the Christmas season. 
I just say, well, I think everybody's kind of striking at the same points. And inevitably, they kind of get absorbed into each other as certain belief systems, certain cultures become dominant. You know, of course, you know, the Christian West absorbed a lot of paganism and kind of co-opted it. But I also think they intuitively understood that it was going for... I think they intuitively understood that it was celebrating or commemorating something significant. And I don't have any more to say on that. You know, I think you can go... You can take that where you will. But I don't think people use things unless they understand the use. I mean, I don't mean that in every single situation. But when Christianity, for example, Western Christianity, is there any other kind? I don't know. (laughs) I don't really know. Uh, But, you know, when you see Christianity, you know, celebrate a day that has some correlation with, you know, the heathens and what they celebrated the, with with pagan mysticism and all this stuff to me that doesn't discount christianity it it means to me that they're all kind of intuitively looking at the same places and for christians to think that this time of year is significant to me is not an indictment of them it's not saying christians are unoriginal I think it's just they're all focused on the same points. It's like uh, if you, just to go back to sports, it's like if you're watching a football game and everybody's looking at the guy who has the ball, which is the intuitive thing to do, you're not going to say that everybody else is just copying somebody else. Like if everybody went over to Mike's house, let's say everybody's over at Mike's house. And Mike's already watching the game. And Mike's watching the guy with the football because that's where the action is. And everybody else who comes over to Mike's house is also watching the guy with the ball. Does that mean they're just stealing Mike's custom? Mike watches the guy with the ball. Does that mean that everybody else who watches the guy with the ball, does that mean that they're stealing something from Mike or they're co-opting it? If one of those people goes home and watches the night game and they're also watching the guy with the ball, does that mean that somehow they're copying Mike? They've taken Mike's customs and rituals and now they're playing them out in their own home? No, it's just intuitive. You look at the guy with the ball because that's where the action is happening in a game. And I feel that that's true for some of these common events and common, uh, just when there is overlap. When you see overlap between different belief systems, or when you see what you believe to be one belief system co-opting something from another, you know, like the connection between Yule, Yuletide, and Christmas. And I don't even know that I'm getting that right. I don't even know that I know exactly what it is people say about that. But I've heard it. I'm, I'm more or less. It's it's. I'm getting it more or less right. I think. Uh, but when you see things like that, to me, the connection between Yuletide, Yuletide, and and Christmas, it's not so much that 
anybody is taking something from somebody else, to me, it's just they all have their eye on the ball. They're all watching where the action is. And I know that's hard to understand when we're talking about times of the year or days of the year. But it's for the same reason that the solstice is the 21st. You know, there's something about this time of year that is obviously significant, even when nothing significant is happening. Even when I'm going to be home alone for the first time, you know, even when I'm going to be celebrating Christmas by myself for the first time as an adult, I mean, for the first time ever, I certainly <laughs> I certainly didn't celebrate Christmas by myself. I didn't have some home alone moment as a kid. Uh, but, you know, even though the normal events of the day aren't going to be happening, there's still something special about that day, just like there's still something special about today, the solstice. And even though I don't necessarily need an explicit ritual or some sort of explicit ceremony to commemorate it, I still think about it and I still feel it. And someone could say that I'm trained to do that. I don't think so. It's sort of a chicken and the egg thing, but it's like society didn't condition people to care about this time of year, specifically the end of December. Society didn't condition people to do that. Something in people. And yet, you know, there's Jesus, there's all, there's all that stuff as well, you know, and that's a part of it. But when you get beyond the specifics, some, there's something in people that decided the end of the year, late December, has some sort of, it's almost a transcendental period, and we have to treat it very differently. Both as families, as individuals, because every family has their own rituals and ceremonies and traditions, you know, but also everybody. Entire towns have their own little customs and traditions this time of year. The country certainly does. Different countries do. And to me, that's not simply that, oh, we decided arbitrarily to make this time of the year significant. So the fact that you feel something on that day is because we have this established tradition that everybody follows and everybody thinks about. You know, it's not even as simple as that because that had to come from somewhere to begin with. You know, something, there had to be some source for all of this that made people decide this time of year is different and needs to be treated differently and thought about differently. And that's what we feel individually when we know that this day is important, even if we don't feel the need to do anything, even if we don't feel the need to light a, a single candle. This is going to sound controversial, but even if you don't feel the need to light a single candle on the solstice, you still feel something on that day. And uh, don't forget about that. You know, don't forget that feeling. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sounds like I was going to cry. <laughs> don't forget that feeling. No, don't forget that that feeling comes from somewhere much deeper than just society alone. And you can assign your own spiritual significance, but I think even a secular person would agree they feel something this time of year. 
It's the reason people decorate their houses. It's the reason they decorate their trees. It actually makes them feel something. But that alone is just sort of a... That's the decoration. That's not the actual feeling. The tree doesn't make you feel like Christmas. It's that feeling of Christmas that makes you go get a tree and put it in a certain place and decorate it a certain way. The feeling comes before the ritual. The feeling comes before the ceremony. And that's what people talk about when they talk about the spirit of Christmas. I accidentally uh, sounded like I cheersed. I have my tea here, and I, I clinked the tea against the counter. So let's consider that a cheers. I didn't even try to. Sometimes you just cheers the kitchen counter with your mug, and you don't even realize what you're doing. But to the spirit of Christmas, to the spirit of Christmas. Now, I love Christmas, and that's enough. You know, I don't need anything more than that. It's a strange year. It's a strange year, you know, but it's not any more strange than any other year. And while there have been changes in my world that have greatly affected this time of year for me, I still love it. I still love Christmas. I still feel the spirit of Christmas. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take.